Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. We're going to move to the passage of Scripture today as we think about, as a church, we're going through this course called Rooted. It's not necessarily a course, but it's an opportunity to meet with God. It's an opportunity to meet with a very real, living, loving, gracious, kind God that wants to do an extraordinary work in each and every one of us. And the whole purpose of Rooted is not to memorize a couple verses or to gain a couple facts or figures about God along the way. The real point of Rooted is that we would have an extraordinary encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. The primary opportunity here is that we would push our agendas, our opinions, our feelings, our beliefs, our values, we would push all of that aside, especially in a day and a time where people are arguing and we have hatred and bitter fallout on both sides of the fence. Rooted gives us an opportunity as a church where we can come together as equals and we can bow down before the throne of Jesus Christ and we can sit at his feet and we can allow him to speak and minister and touch our lives and transform our lives because a lost and dying world desperately needs a church that's alive, that's awakened, that's infused with the power of God's spirit and is on board and ready to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the second week of uh, Rooted is, who is God? Now I'm here to tell you, I'm going to answer all of your questions in the next 30 minutes. I know that if you take a survey of world religions, there's been a lot of bright individuals that have been able to try to identify or define who God is, but I'm going to do this in 30 minutes. Some of you look a little skeptical or, or doubtful about that, and that's a little bit of sarcasm here because this has been the Achilles heel since the inception of humanity is who is God. Who is this God? And if we do a survey of world religions, we realize about 600 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene, there was an individual by the name of Siddhartha, and he founded Buddhism. And his primary issue that he wrestled with was pain, suffering, and loss. And so he started a journey of answering this question, who is God? And he pursued this idea of a utopia or a nirvana that I could somehow emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, I could remove myself from this world and I could step into a peaceful realm of my own creation and I could stare into emptiness and somehow when I stared into emptiness that I would find peace and hope and love and joy. And that was his journey. Another journey that we find uh, throughout uh, world history or world religions is Hinduism. Now, Hinduism is more like a government. When you think about uh, Hinduism, you think about, you think about Krishna. And you had this one God, and then you've got 33,000 or maybe even hundreds of thousands or millions of demigods, and they're supposed to keep things in the order. There's the God of the air, the God of the wind, the God of the fire, the God of the oceans. There's a God for just about everything that we find in this world, materially speaking. And he wanted to govern that, and he wanted us to find peace by pursuing over 33 million different gods. Now, if we continue on, another uh, world religion that has uh, become fairly prominent uh, recently over the past 25 to 30 years here in America is Islam. And the whole di idea of Islam is there's this God that he's distant, he's unapproachable, he's unknowable, he's unreachable. If you spend enough time in the Quran, you realize that this God could potentially be pretty upset with humanity, and it's our goal in life to pursue peace with Allah. And Allah sent several prophets, Adam, Noah, Moses, Jesus Christ was one of them. The last speaker on behalf of Allah was Muhammad. Okay? And so that's another approach to answering this question, who is God? But then we come into the whole movement of the 1970s, and that was the New Age movement. This New Age of light and this New Age of love. This whole idea of a perfect harmony with oneself and with one another and with the environment around us. In fact, 
New Age is large. It, it encapsulates the occult. It uh, encapsulates uh, 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 astrology. It encapsulates uh, any number, just about anything that you want to do, whether it's taking a trip to, to Sedona, Arizona, or New Mexico, uh, holding geodes in your, or crystals around your neck. It, it just incorporates everything and anything because when you really distill New Age down, what they're saying is you are your own God. You've come to a place where you are your own God. You call the shots. You design who or what you worship, how often, and how you go about pursuing this answer about who is God. Okay. And then lastly on the scene of world religions is Christianity. And Christianity is built on this historical figure, well documented, documented all throughout history. And in, in, in addition to the disciples or the apostles following, following him and taking notes, the whole premise of Christianity is that God cares. The whole premise is, is that God, the real God, the one true God, realized that humanity, in search of this definition of who is God, was going to fall flat on their face and make a mistake and head in any number of different directions to try to answer this question, who is God? And people were grasping and reaching and trying to identify and define God, and God saw their hopelessness, and he sent this person by the name of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, every bit human being as if he was just a human, every bit God if he was just a God, and God sent his son to come to us to answer the question, who is God? What is God? Who is God? We know in one particular situation he was asked about this, and Jesus said, I am he, I am the son of God. Now, this is important because every human being since inception, everyone that's drawn a breath in this world from beginning to end has had to wrestle with the question of who is God. I know that in my own personal life that I've woke up many a mornings, many a days before I go to bed, I stare in the mirror and I've asked myself this question over and over and over again, who is God? So I want to ask you this question right now. If I was to ask you to define who God is, what does he look like, can you explain that? Can you define that? Any takers, audience participation, your image or your perception of God? Big, tall? Like Dwayne Johnson, big, tall, 6'6", 280? I want to know how big your, Chris, I want to know how big your God is pretty big. Still doesn't answer the question. All right. Is he coming off the third rope? Too big for that. Okay. So he's breaking the ropes. Good answer. What I like about Chris is he doesn't try to be spiritualized. He doesn't try to spiritualize everything. He comes right out with, he's just a big God. Okay. And he's coming up with Dwayne Johnson. So Lenny sees a God of light that is absolutely blinding, okay? All right. Question for you, Lenny. Why aren't you wearing sunglasses this morning? All right. Any other images of Jesus? Any other images of God? Exactly. God is the... Father of my Lord and Savior. I'm going to tell you what my image of God is, and I've wrestled it with a long, for a long time growing up, still wrestle with it today, is my image of God is a judge or a referee in a sporting event. My image that I wrestle with God is a police officer. My image of God is based on the whole idea that there's this God out there that's waiting for David Lemoyne to screw up. Okay? My image of God is I'm somehow going to get in trouble and I'm going to be in the timeout box. And when I hit the timeout box, I'm not exactly sure how long I'm going to stay. I'm not sure how God's going to approach me if he ever approaches me again. I'm not exactly sure that God is really that relational and that he wants to have a relationship with me, one that is based on mutual love and respect and honor. Any of you in here share that same image of God, that God is this 
perfectionists that we have to meet his standards. And if we don't meet his standards by 110%, somehow we've missed a mark and God is disappointed with me and he's going to take me away and he's going to put me on a shelf or he's going to put me in a box in the basement or he's going to put me in a timeout box. And I'm not exactly sure what my relationship with this God is going to look like going forward. Anybody else this morning struggle with that image of God? I think many of us, if we were honest, would say, yes, we all have this perception of who God is. And the reason why God had to send his son is he had to break down these barriers. He had to break down these falsehoods. He had to wrestle with our opinions. He had to wrestle with our beliefs. He had to tear down all the misconceptions that humanity has had with God since inception, since creation. He had to tear that all down and bring us to a level place that we call the cross where Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he died, he spent three days in the grave, and something miraculous happened. The very power of God scooped Jesus up and breathed life back into his lungs, and Jesus was there, raised from the dead. And God wanted us to walk in this world with no misconceptions and no misunderstandings when it came to what he looks like or what is his priority? What are his motives? What are his values? What are his beliefs? What is his mission in the world, both corporately and among the community and in you and I, myself? He wanted to remove all the lies, all the falsehoods, all the misidentifications, and he wanted to tear down that stronghold of me thinking of God as a judge or a police officer or a referee. And that's why this weak and rooted is very important because if we misidentify and we misdefine who God is, think about the impact and the play out in our lives and our relationships with our spouse and our children and with our neighbors. If we misidentify or we misdefine who this one true God is, it messes up life in its entirety. And that's why God took such great lengths to define or show himself or reveal himself to us. And we're going to talk about God revealing himself to us through creation. And we're going to talk about God revealing himself to us through the Christ Jesus. So I want to step back to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We look at this son and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look, at his son, we look at this son and we see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above, below, visible, invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And it's echoed from the very first passages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created. He wanted no mistake about the origins of the universe. He wanted to make no mistake about the origin of man. He wanted to make no mistake about questioning the origin of God because he doesn't have an origin. He's always been in existence. And from the very beginning, we see that there is a God of three persons. We see that there's one true God but three distinct personhoods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't have time to unpack that, and quite honestly, I'd be a fool to even attempt that this morning, because there's just volume after volume after volume written about the Trinity of God. I kind of have to distill it and simplify it for myself. I think of it like this, when I'm walking down the streets in New York City, and I still, after working there for a number of years, I still walk around and I'm amazed by the skyscrapers, and I'm amazed by the tremendous amount of building that is always going on in New York City. And when I walk by this foundation, they always have this big sign up, and that sign has the owner of the building, the owner of the project, who I relate to as God the Father. And then there's the name of the general contractor, who I would relate to as Jesus, the very Son of God. And then after the general contractor, there might be a list of some of the uh, hardworking blue-collar guys like the electrician, the plumber, uh, the painter, uh, you name it. 
doing the building and the work on that building. And I equate those individuals to the Holy Spirit. So you got God the Father, God the Son, the GC, and you got God the Holy Spirit doing the work. Three distinct persons, one God. That's as far as I'm going to go this morning because I don't want to trip up and make a mistake and uh, be sent to the timeout box with God. So that's as far as I'm going to go in terms of the Trinity. But the most important part is that God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit were there from inception from the very beginning. Jesus is our creator. The Holy Spirit is our creator. God the Father is our creator. The one true God. And what's absolutely amazing about the Bible is if I were to write a manual, if I were to write a religious manual that I wanted to convince people about my divinity, I would start off with trying to convince people that I'm God. I would think about all the arguments and all the debates that were on the horizon, and I would try to explain my existence as a God or a demigod. What's remarkable is many world religions do that, but what's absolutely remarkable about Christianity is Christianity assumes that God's always been present. There's no debate about it. There's no question about it. While the masses of humanity scratch and scrape at this whole concept, does God have an origin and does God have a beginning and who created God to begin with, the Bible just safely assumes that he has always existed from inception and everything that we see and everybody we meet comes from the very existence of God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. There's just no argument there. The Bible simply says that in the beginning, God created. Now, I don't know about you, but I am absolutely fascinated with some aspects of God. And first and foremost, or actually second, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the creation event. So I don't know about you. When I get to heaven, I'm sure there's going to be some loved ones that I want to meet and chat with. There's going to be some people I want to sit with, ask some questions. I want to ask Noah, for example, why did he bring cockroaches onto the uh, <clears throat> ark? You know, I got a lot of ants. I was climbing on the ladder, and I was cleaning the, uh, the gutter up there. And for an old man with a bad back and, and uh, sore hamstrings, I got down the ladder fairly quickly because I ran into a wasp nest, and I got tagged twice. So I was pretty upset about that. But I have a lot of questions about uh, God and about other people and their interaction with God. But what I'm really concerned about, not concerned about, but interested in, is this whole idea of creation. How did it happen? How did it happen? Nobody was there but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I took the liberty of doing a little bit of research. Uh, Matt Longmire spent some time with him around a campfire, and he had the Skyview app, and we were talking about the stars up there, and he said, well, that's Mars. And I said, well, you know, Matt, you're a smart guy, but how do you know it's Mars? So he whips out the app, he points up the phone, and it just lit up on the phone. And I was absolutely amazed by that. So I uh, downloaded the Skyview app, and I've done a little research because I'm absolutely amazed. I'm dumbfounded about creation in general. So here's a couple notes here. Did you realize that there's over 100 billion galaxies? Okay. With the advancements in science and technology, it could increase to about 200 billion galaxies. Each galaxy has millions to trillions of stars that are held together by gravity. At the center of ours is the Milky Way, 200 billion stars. 100 billion solar systems. Our solar system is eight planets, five dwarf planets, 181 moons, half a million asteroids, 3,000 comets, all tucked into the diameter of about 11.65 trillion miles. The sun is absolutely enormous. When you think about the surface, ten the surface temperature is about 27 million degrees. Okay, you thought a microwave was fast on a hot dog. Get a little closer to the sun, Okay. It takes the light from the sun, 8 minutes and 20 seconds to reach the surface of the earth. In fact, the sun is so great that you could take a million earths and you could pack a million earths into the sun. And all that is held together. 
All of that has intelligent life behind it. All of it has order. All of it has unity. All of it has a functionality that just seems to work when you think about trillions and trillions of planets and stars. And I can only imagine that moment when God hits the play button on creation. When I sit there with Jesus and I say, Jesus, please show me how you created the heavens and the earth. Please show me how you created the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of galaxies. The Bible says that he started with nothing. The Bible says it was void, it was empty, it was hollow, it was a deep abyss of nothingness. I like guys like Elon Musk. I like those visionaries. They see something that other people don't see. They see the same things that everybody else in the world sees. They see all the materials of the world. They see absolutely everything, but they're a visionary and they're able to bring this together and this together and this together and this together and they're able to build a prototype, the Tesla. It's just an amazing gift. And our world is filled with amazing inventors, one after another, after another, after another, and they all have something in common. You name it. Name an invention. Ketchup bottle. There's the the philosopher in the room. The light bulb. Old school. We're going to go with a light bulb. The telephone. Yes, the favorite invention of my wife is the telephone. Automobiles. Airplanes. What do they all have in common? Imagination? Something else? Creativity? They all had the materials in front of them. They're inventors, they're not creators. That's what separates God apart from humanity. There was no material. That blows my mind that he thought something. And it's almost like he put his hands together and he started casting out billions of galaxies and solar systems and stars and moons, and suns, and asteroids, and over and over again, the creative capacity of God brought solids, liquids, gases into existence, and cast them out on this big board that could handle millions, if not trillions, of galaxies, and he brought everything absolutely into fruition, that it became real, that you could taste, touch, and smell. That blows my mind. I can't even begin to grasp or I can't even begin to understand the power and the intelligence and the glory of God that could take nothing and out of that create everything that we see. It's absolutely amazing that God keeps all of this in order. It's absolutely amazing that when you think about how grand and how glorious the skies are, and I know like myself, many of you have stood there. I remember a time in uh, Massachusetts when I was lost and my life was buried in all kinds of nonsense, and I remember stepping out on the back porch in the Berkshires and staring up at the heavens at night and asking myself, who is God? Who am I? I remember standing at the end of Worth Avon Palm Beach as the tides were coming in and out, in and out, in and out, and the sun was beginning to fall, and it was a beautiful sunset, and I was wrestling with the same question 1,800 miles away. Who is God? Who am I? Who makes sense of all of this? What's the purpose and the meaning of my existence? 
And God knew that David Lemoyne in those two places and several other places, and he knew that you as well would stand at different points and places in your life, and you either look at the oceans or walk through the woods or you look up at the heavens and you have the same question, who is God? And if there is a God, who am I? God knew the pain, he knew the agony, he knew the lostness, he knew the hopelessness, he knew the many avenues that we would travel to try to answer that question, and God reached out to us. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created, God initiated his work in this world, God initiated his work in our lives, and none of it makes sense until we ask the right question. And time and time again, I found myself asking God, who am I? and I was disillusioned and I was lost and I was hopeless and I was floundering and I was wrestling with the hard issues of life but it wasn't until I turned my attention to the cross and I said who are you who are you because humanity we want to define ourselves first and then come up with an idea of who God is but God says no I'm going to define myself. I'm going to be myself. And I'm going to disclose who I am to you. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. That he was one of self-disclosure. The Bible begins with this God creating this world and it was in perfect peace. The Hebrew word for that is shalom, that everything was neat and orderly and tidy, and there was peace. It was a perfect, pristine, pure environment that God brought Adam and Eve into. It was peaceful. It was hopeful. There was perfect intimacy between God, man, and the cosmos. It was personally designed by God. It was personally designed for us to see his glory, to see his splendor, to see his majesty. I like what the message says in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. God's glory is on tour in the skies. God's craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every night or every morning, and Professor Knight lectures each evening. I want to propose to you that Jesus is the source of creation, the source of life, the source of everything that we see. But not only is he the Lord or the source of creation, he is our Christ. Think about what uh, Paul wrote in uh, one particular passage of the Bible where it says, I look up at your macro skies, and I'm reading from the message, but look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, your moon, the stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and I wonder, why do you bother with us? The message says, why do you even take a second look at us? And later on, God says in Genesis, he says, I am going to create man in my own image. That he's given us a will. He's given us a mind. He's given us a heart, a capacity to be in relationships. That's what it means, that we're in the very image of God, that he had this perfect, intimate relationship with the Trinity, and that was enough, and that was fulfilling, and that was satisfying. But God also created human beings. He wanted to have a perfect relationship based on love, trust, respect, And he wanted to have that relationship, and he created us in that image to have a mind, a will, and emotions to be intimately tied to God and intimately tied to our fellow human beings. We are created in the image of God, and God invited us into this world to be a part of this world. If you remember that God spoke to Adam and Eve, and he said, I want you to multiply, and I want you to have dominion. I want you to have responsibility. I want you to cooperate with me in this world. Everything you do, I want you to understand that it has the potential to reflect my glory. It has the potential to reflect my majesty. It has the potential to to reflect my splendor. And God is inviting us. He initiated work and he's inviting us to be with him and work alongside him. I want you to think about this. What is the most uh, terrifying uh, scenario in life that you could think of? Or what is the most 
heinous punishment that one human can inflict upon another. Hmm? What's that? Taking a child? Severed relationship? Anybody else? I want you to think of a, pri- a term in prison. Isolation. The most horrible, the most heinous punishment that you can inflict upon another human being is not beating them. It's not skinning them alive. It's not anything that you could possibly think of that one person has done to another that we would call absolute evil. The most heinous punishment that you can inflict upon another person is solitary confinement. Think about that for a moment. Sure, some of us are introverts. I'm an introvert by nature, and I like my alone time. But you couldn't tuck me away in my bedroom for seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and I wouldn't come out of that seven days happy because even though I'm an introvert, by default, I'm driven to have relationships. I'm driven to have a relationship with my spouse, relationship with my children, relationship with friends, coworkers. Solitary confinement would be a horrible punishment for myself and for everyone else. Think about the fallout when it comes to solitary confinement, the mental effects. There's anxiety, depression, anger, hypersensitivity to sounds and smells, memory loss, hallucinations, paranoia, ultimately suicide. When you think about the physical fallout from solitary confinement, is digestive problems, chronic headaches, eyesight deterioration, loss of appetite, sleep problems, trembling hands and legs, and maybe even heart palpitations. God created this perfect world. He casted it into existence. And then he went to the dirt of the earth and he put his hands on the dirt of the earth and he formed Adam. And he picked Adam up out of the dirt and he kissed him and breathed life into Adam's lungs. And Adam and God had a perfect relationship. And God assigned Adam the task of naming the animals. And as they walked by, Adam could say, okay, there's Mr. and Miss Giraffe. There's Mr. and Miss Elephant. There's Mr. and Miss Platypus. There's Mr. and Miss Zebra. There's Mr. and Miss Cockroach. There's Mr. and Miss Gnat. There's Mr. and Miss... And it went on and on and on and on and on again. And something deeply seeded that God had placed in Adam's heart became bubbling to the surface. And God saw Adam's pain. And God saw Adam's loneliness. And God said, it is not good for you to be alone. And God was speaking to Adam on a very real and physical relationship, but what God was saying much more than that is it's not good for you to be isolated and alone from me. I'm your creator. I'm the one that drew you up. I'm the one that breathed life into your lungs. It is not good for you to be alone. It's not good for anything to be between me and you. It's not good for you. It's not good for me that anything would separate, that there would be a canyon or a vast valley between you and I. I was meant to be in an intimate relationship with you, and you were designed to be in an intimate relationship with me. There's to be absolutely nothing between you and and between me. And God said to Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. And God did another amazing work, and out of Adam came Eve. And it was the picture of the perfect relationship. I don't know about you guys, but I had that perfect relationship with my spouse. We never debate, we never argue we never, we never, <clears throat> a NASCAR term, we never get sideways and trade paint. Okay. We, uh, <clears throat> we do have some intense fellowship from time to time. But we 
never argue. We get along completely. Is that your marriage like that as well? I hope so. We know that shortly thereafter, Adam and Eve are sitting in the garden, and the serpent comes up on them. Obviously, they had spent some time because God said, basically, he put this fence around the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, listen, you can have anything in the Garden of Eden. You just can't, you just can't, you just can't play around with this tree at all. This is not for you. This is set aside for me alone. I've given you absolutely everything under the sun. You're invited to participate, to share in, to have anything and everything that you find in a garden even. You just cannot touch or taste or get around this one particular area in a garden of Eden. And what do you think humankind did? I don't know about you, but... I know, how to, I know how to pick an instant fight with my eight-year-old. I just tell him what he can't do. Don't get into the cookie jar. What do you think he's going to do? Huh? Don't go outside with your shoes off. Don't run around outside barefoot. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to run around outside barefoot. Not only that, he's going to run around and play football, and he's going to come in, and his feet are going to be all nasty and ugly and dirty, and he's going to show them off. He's going to get on the furniture, and he's going to hit the switch, and that uh, uh, recliner is going to come up, and he's going to put those feet right in, my, in front of my face. <laughs> right? Because it was in his nature. And God told Adam and Eve, do not do this. And they were tricked, and they were deceived, and they were manipulated, and they did. And just as God had always done, day after day after day, in the cool of the day, God walked in the garden. Day after day after day, they had perfect intimacy and fellowship, and God sat and met with Adam and Eve. But on this particular day, after the day that they had touched or tasted the unforbidden or the forbidden fruit. On this particular day, God walks through the garden, and we know from the Bible that Adam and Eve heard God coming. They knew God's gate. You know, when you're a distance off and you're looking up the sidewalk of your neighborhood and you can see different people walking their dogs and you go, well, that's not, that's not my daughter. That's not my son. That's not my wife. Because they had this gate from a distance. They just have a, a certain walk, a certain look about them. My gait is I got a, a, a pretty bad hip, so sometimes I just kind of lift it up a little bit so like that. I'm not strutting. I'm not against strutting, so I'm not trying to be arrogant. But I do have a little bit of a hitch in the hip because of an injury, right? has a gait. Adam and Eve recognized God immediately. And there he was. And he was coming. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. For the first time in their relationship, they tucked tail and ran in the opposite direction of God and were scurrying and digging and trying to find any tool, any instrument that they could dig a hole deep enough or find a cave dark enough that they could bury themselves in isolation, all alone, separated from God, and they wanted to hide from the one God that loved them, spent time with them, and created them. And that's what sin brought into all of humanity, is this innate desire to run from God and to be away from God. And if we run from God and we're away from God long enough, we start to hate God. We uh, don't like God. We don't want to be near God. We are critical of God. We judge God. We push God off as someone that is not important in our lives and in the lives of others. And we find that Adam and Eve had buried themselves and hid from the very person that loved them and created them. And his question to them in the garden was what? Where are you? Adam. Eve. Where are you? Can I ask you this question? I want you to think back 
over your relationship with God? Can you remember the time and the place in your life where God's Spirit said, where are you? 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 I haven't shared my testimony that often because I'm kind of a private person. And I like to be with people that I know, like, and trust, and there's a matter of confidentiality. But I'm going to tell you where I was. I had made an absolute mess of my life. If you could do it, I probably did it. I had one moral rule that governed my life. And I don't know why other than the religious, and I say religious upbringing that I had. I had one moral rule. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. I remember on one particular situation, I was out at a nightclub. I went to college in Texas Tech. I went down to the local honky-tonk. Uh, yes, I wore cowboy boots and had a big belt buckle at one point in time in my life. But I went to the hockey talk. I was hanging out with my friend, and we were just shooting the bull and talking. And uh, he kept saying, GC, GC this, GD this, GC this. And I remember uh, being drunk, sitting in the car, going back to the dorm with my friend that dropped the Lord's name in vain. I had the audacity to give him a lecture on that he shouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. Even though I was doing absolutely everything that he was doing, I just happened to have a clean mouth. I chose different uh, words of expression or profanity to use. And I remember that was the one moral code I had was not to use the Lord's name in vain. Okay? On this particular moment, I had made an absolute mess of my life. I had destroyed my career. I had destroyed some relationships in my life. I absolutely had nothing going for me. I reached a bottom. I, I hit bottom hard. I hit bottom so hard that I landed up in an office with a, with a psychologist. I landed so hard that I was on antidepressants, and I hit so hard that I left a good job, went across the street for another job. I hit so hard that I didn't know my head from my back end. I didn't know which end was up and which end was down. And I find myself in an empty apartment, having lost everything, and I'm weeping and I'm crying, and I am totally distraught about the decisions that I had made through college on into my early careers, and my, relationship, my, my decisions that I made in terms of career and relationships, and my life had absolutely fallen apart. And all I had in that apartment was a futon, a TV, and a 9 millimeter. And I was broken, I was distraught, I was so filled with guilt, I was so filled with shame, I saw no end of this, I had broken all the rules, I had broken all the codes, I was no longer a moral, a moral uh, individual, and I had no hope. And I went to the closet, and I pulled that 9mm out, and I stood there on the floor. I sat on the floor like this. Hopeless. Lost. I'm talking about a kid that was in church every day, that every time the door was open. I'm talking about a kid where your dad preached, he taught, he Sunday school, youth leader, but I grew up with this God that was perfect, I couldn't live up to his expectations. I knew that I would fail on any given day, and I found myself at a point in life where I had utterly failed God and myself and my family. And something began working in my heart. Something began, I mean, I can't even explain it. My heart started, it was a, a faint whisper at first. There's hope. 
it became so strong that I had this urge to go into my closet and open up this box that had a NIV life study Bible that I had owned probably six, seven, eight years that was sitting in the closet on the floor in a box. And I had this sudden urge, didn't have that urge for 20 years, but I had this sudden urge just to go and open up my Bible. And I opened up my Bible and I said, geez, I, you know, I, I, I had the books of the Bible memorized. I don't, even know where to, I don't even know where to begin. So I just did this shotgun approach and I just plopped it open. And I came to the story of Jesus sitting in the boat with the disciples and a great storm had poured upon them and came over them, and they were helpless, and they were fearful, and they were straining and striving to protect and to safeguard their very life. And the words that jumped out of the passage, the words that jumped off the Bible, the, jumps, the words that seized my heart and soul was this, that they were afraid of their lives, and they were straining at the oars. And God said, you have been running your own life. You have been straining at the oars. And you have rowed yourself into the last storm. You have rowed yourself into your last chance. Your last opportunity. I was broken absolutely broken to have that encounter with a high and holy God that had let me live life on my terms to suddenly at the very end of things with no way out, no hope, no faith, no trust, no joy, no love, no care, no compassion, no mercy, no grace to find yourself in a deep, dark hole. And God comes to you and says, David, where are you? That was such a simple prayer. Help me, Jesus. I am so lost. I have done such a great job of hiding you, God, of hiding from you, God. I couldn't even draw you a map to find me. If I gave you a map and compass, I couldn't even tell you, God, where you could even begin to find me. I don't even know myself where I'm at anymore. I don't even know who I am. Help me, Jesus. Life wasn't easy. Hasn't always been easy. Still have trials. Still have challenges. Still struggle. Still wrestle with my image of God. Still wrestle with defining who God is. Still wrestle with looking in the mirror and asking myself, who am I? What's my purpose in life? What's my role in this world? But I know this, I surrendered to yours. I know what I'm capable of doing when I'm in control of my life. I know what the end game looks like. I know that if I ever go in another direction, I know where I'm heading. And I've walked with Christ long enough to know now what I would be forfeiting what I would be giving up, what I would be saying no to. And that's what's absolutely amazing about the Bible is that God created this perfect environment. He created Am. He created Eve. They had a perfect relationship. They did exactly what God told them not to do. And then there was this vast cavern or this valley or cosmos that separated them from God and God saw their need and once again not only did God initiate creation God initiated a relationship through his son Jesus Christ he says I know that you're going to miss the mark I know that you're going to fall that old 
old-timey word that we call sin. I know that you're going to be sin-laden. I know that you're going to be lost. I know that you're going to be hopeless. I know that you're going to miss the mark. I know that you don't know where you're at in life. I know that you know that you're lost. I know how to find you. I'm not asking you where are you because I can't find you. I'm asking that question so that you can properly identify where you are in life. And with quick measure and quick speed, God sent his one and only son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he was every bit God if he was just God. And he was every bit man if he were just man. This is what separates Christianity from all other relations, all other religions. And it's this. Man scrapes. Man crawls. Man gropes around in darkness. Man is trying to find God on all their own terms. And then Jesus says, no, I see where you're at in life. I see that you need help. I'm here for you. I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to leave the throne rooms of heaven. I will assume the body of a human being. I will know what temptation is. I will know what hopelessness is. I will understand hunger. I will understand disease. I will understand war. I will understand all the ugly, nasty crap that this world throws at us. He wasn't Allah sitting on a throne. He was Jesus that assumed a mortal human body and lived with us for 33 years. That just blows my mind. I would like to think that, I probably would do this, not to be funny here, but if my house was on fire, if I rolled up in the driveway and I saw my house on fire and I knew that it would cost my life, I would leave the car and I would sacrifice my life with the hopes of getting my wife and my children out of a burning house. I would do that for people that are close to me, people that I love. But I don't know if I would do it for other people. I don't know if I have that kind of love or care or compassion in my heart. I got a lot of respect for guys like Mike Yaka that are firemen that would rush into a burning building for a complete stranger or a police officer that would step in front of a criminal and take the bullet that was intended for another individual. I got a lot of respect for people like that, but I gotta be honest with you, I'm not so sure I have that within me. I think if I saw somebody getting caught up in a, in a wave in the ocean, and, and I, I would step back and I would kinda of calculate, what's the risk versus reward here? I got my family sitting in the beach chairs, we're enjoying time together, you know, I just got into my sandwich and my chips, and uh, somebody's out there yelling for help, and it's inevitable that if somebody doesn't go out to help them that they're going to drown. This is a five, six-year-old child, doesn't know how to swim. Yeah, I'm the kind of individual that's going to weigh out the risk versus reward. I got my family. I see the need put my family on one side of the scale. I put this stranger on the other side of the scale. I'm not exactly sure this is what's in my best interest. Jesus saw the scales on the table in heaven and he wiped them right off the table. He says, I don't care about my life. I love you so much that I'm going to give my life away to you and for you. That, my friends, is what separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. There's not one heaven in many ways, to find our way to heaven. I can't climb Hinduism and find Jesus. I can't climb the mountain of Islam and find Jesus. I can't climb New Age 
and find Jesus? But if for a moment in my life, if I could humble myself enough to the point where I would say, I don't know who God is, and I'm open to God revealing who he is to me in a very real and personal way, I spent a little time in God's word that's alive and active that I can assure you without a shadow of a doubt that you'd feel his touch. Except this time he wouldn't be walking up on you and saying, where are you? He'd feel his hand on your shoulder and he'd be saying, I'm here for you. You were lost, but now you're found. You were in darkness, but I offer life or light. You were dying, and I'm offering you life. So I want to propose to you this morning that Jesus is our creator and Jesus is our Christ. I want to close with this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's found in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is preaching in a synagogue it's most likely his first sermon. He is surrounded by the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These are all people that have defined God with thousands and thousands and thousands of rules, thousands and thousands of ideas for guidelines, uh, directions, what have you. And Jesus stands there in the synagogue, and he opens up the Scripture, and he begins reading, The Spirit of God, the Master, is on me. Because God anointed me. He sent me to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to announce freedom to all captives, to pardon all prisoners. God sent me to announce the year of his grace. I don't know where you're at this morning. Are you spiritually poor, emotionally bankrupt? Maybe you have a tremendous amount of pain and loss that you're wrestling with in your heart or in your soul. I don't know where you're at. I know where I was at. I know exactly where I was when God said, Dave, where are you? I want to propose this to you this morning, that each and every one of us here this morning has something in common, and that is that we need forgiveness. The truth of the matter is, is none of us are perfect. None of us on our best day could ever stand before God and say, I've arrived. I understand exactly who you are. I know what you want, and I've completed the task. Just go ahead and open up the gates. Welcome you in. Throw me a party. I'm perfect. I'm rip rare and ready to go to spend my life for all of eternity in heaven. Not a one of us could stand there and say that. And that's why Jesus had to come. He said the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And it truly is a gift because it's not something that by default or by nature that we look for. If we lined up one after another and shared our testimonies, the vast majority of us would have to confess that I really wasn't looking for this. I tripped and stumbled over something or someone God put in my life. World religion trips and stumbles over Jesus. Maybe today, maybe in this place, maybe in this moment, you're tripping over this whole 
question, who is God? And I want to encourage you with this. You don't have to search any longer. He's here. He's present. He knows where you're at. And he's standing at the door of your heart and your soul. And he's knocking. understand and define who you are. It's really an exercise in futility for a human being to try to answer the questions to define who you are. That's why we just lift up your word. We lift up the name of Jesus. We exalt Jesus. We invite the Holy Spirit to be here because at the end of the day, Jesus, we just want you to be you. So we ask, Lord Jesus, by way of your spirit, to have your way in our hearts this morning. Whether it's for comfort, whether it's for joy, whether it's for peace, whether it's for liberation, whether it's for salvation. God, let us just simply say yes to you as we meet you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.